have been um, used as an introduction for Mr. Ingram, so thank you for thinking that I had bowled a perfect game. Uh, I have not. I have not. How good to be with you this morning. Um, I probably am the older one in the room to remember your history. Do anyone remember where you began as a church? Lexington. Do you remember where you were meeting in Lexington? Piece of history. You were meeting at Franklin School in Lexington, which is about 100 yards from my front door. And it's been a joy and a delight to watch how this church has, has grown over the years. Do you know the name Harvey Meppelink? Okay. One of the saints that started this church. And I assume you know a guy by the name of Ernie Tavilla. Do you know that name? Also a saint and also a part of the history of your church. These were dear brothers, great friends um, in our neighborhood watching this church grow and birth and flourish. And now to see you here in Watertown as well as in Burlington where my extended family, my son Nate and his wife Ashley and our three grandbabies are being nurtured in their faith. So thank you for your investment in my family's life. And uh, it's a real privilege to uh, be there next Sunday uh, saying the same thing. If you didn't hear this as well as you'd like to, maybe you could come back uh, over in Burlington next week. But um, it's just great to be with you and a real, real privilege. Uh, it was especially joyful for me to see one of my dearest and closest friends of over the years working with me at Vision New England is Carol Nason. And Carol is in your midst. Carol, raise your hand. Carol is um, a saint as well. And we worked together for the majority of my 14 years at Vision New England. Carol was my executive assistant. And uh, not only did she do great work as we talk about work today, uh, but she taught me two really important things by her example, not by my example, but by her example. She taught me how to uh, be humble and she taught me what it means to live a life of forgiveness. And I'll never forget the many, many conversations we had over the years made workplace matter for me to have such an amazing assistant. I haven't seen her like forever. So to get to see her this morning is pure, pure joy. You have a saint among you. Get to know dear Carol and watch what you learn as a result. Today, friends, you are in the midst of this season of uh, talking about workplace. And I'm not a workplace expert at all. Uh, but uh, what I'm hoping to encourage you on today is that in your workplace, like in your neighborhood and in your family and among the people that you connect with, that you learn how to practice a preference for God. That's a phrase that I want to uh, present to you today. What does it mean to practice a preference for God? You may have heard something similar in the past, a phrase that is described as practicing the presence of God. A guy by the name of Lawrence, Brother Lawrence, 
uh, wrote a, a, a classic that has been uh, reprinted millions of times over the years uh, called Practicing the Presence of God. And we sang about that this morning as we started our worship time. What does it mean to practice a preference for God as we practice the presence of God? And I want to tell you this morning that if you learn how to practice a preference for God, your workplace will be totally and completely transformed. Because what's going on inside of you is more important than what's going on all around you. But today we live in a day of distraction, great distraction. And we don't know how to practice a preference for God because the, the voices that are screaming at us are to notice everything else but God. And those who have been a part of what I am a part of, the spiritual formation movement, have said that probably the biggest, most clearest, defining word of our generation today is the word distraction. Think about what your cell phone does to you in and of itself. It is a constant 24-7 distraction. And you need to give that thing a rest. You need to give it Sabbath. You need to put it off to the side because I also am the bearer of bad news. It's killing your soul. It is killing your soul because it is distracting you from the very nature and the presence and the power of God. Anything that's distracting you from focusing on God is, frankly, the work of the enemy of your soul who loves to distract you, loves to confuse you, loves to take and, and uh, pour messages into your heart and into your ears that are anti-God. They're away from God. They're distracting you from practicing a preference for God. And we don't want to live that way. We don't want to live that way at home. We don't want to live that way in our communities, and our neighborhoods, our workplaces. Simply don't want to live that way because that is a way of, of mass destruction, <clears throat> not mass abundance. Today, I want to encourage you very simply about two things. One is that the God of the universe loves you, is intimately acquainted with all of your ways, and delights to companion you every moment of every day of your life. I want to re remind you of that. It's so simple. It is so profound. He is ever-present. He is all-powerful. He wants to make himself known to you in every aspect of your being, in the core of your being, because he is standing on the porch of heaven, and he is, he is, he's got his eyes peeled on you. And he doesn't know any other way to relate to you but to love you. That is the God of the universe. Anything that's less than that is not God. The fullness of God is that he loves to love you. And what he invites you and me to do is simply notice that. Is to simply notice how much God loves you. If you get those two things, your life will be completely and radically transformed. If you can remember that he loves you, no matter what, he's not shaking his finger, he's not angry-fisted angry towards you, he's not belittling you and shaming you and putting you down. No, because he, he created you, he designed you. You're a unique you. There's no one else that has your face. There's no one else that has your thumbprint. There's no one else ever 
in history today or in the future that is a replica of you. That's how creative and that's how beautiful he has designed all of creation, including every single one of us in this room. And so if he has done that for us because he initiates love and grace and kindness and creativity and he's made us for himself, then the only thing we need to really learn how to do is notice him. And the way in which we notice him is by practicing a preference for God. My granddaughter, Brenna, loves to play hide-and-seek. But she doesn't get fully what hide-and-seek is all about because when she finds a place to hide in the house and we start going after counting to ten and she's hidden, as soon as we come, she'll go, woo-hoo. She'll go, woo-hoo. And it's like, Brenna, no, you, you don't get it. We're just playing hide-and-seek. We're supposed to be coming and finding you. And she's like, woo-hoo, because she wants to be found. She wants to be found. You see, God doesn't play hide-and-seek. God, you know, one, one spiritual author said, you know, it's like, it's like God is standing behind a, a curtain in your living room, and you're playing hide-and-seek, and instead of saying woo-hoo, he's putting his foot outside the curtain so that you can see him and you can find him. That's who God is. God is amazing in his creativity. He's amazing in his love. And he wants to be known by you because he loves you and he cares very, very deeply for you. So let's expound on that concept for just a few moments. We talked about, or Andrew said, it's the book that I wrote is called The Discerning Life. It's about spiritual discernment. It's, it's about discerning God before you discern God's will and God's way. Um, and in this book, I talk about practicing a preference for God. That phrase that came from one of my mentors, Reuben Job, who when he described spiritual discernment, described it as a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of noticing God. It's a lifestyle of practicing the pref a preference for God as we're understanding what it means to be in his presence. And he talks about the importance of God's divine invitation and God's divine intention. His invitation is to come close, draw near, follow after me. His intention is that we follow after him in, in all aspects of our life, in our workplace, in our family, in every decision that we make. And so to practice a preference for God means that we're understanding his invitation, which is all the same throughout the entire pages of the scriptures. He's saying the same thing. Come close, draw near, follow me. Come close, draw near, follow me. And every single one of the biblical stories of God's people being invited to come close, draw near, follow me from the garden to the book of Revelation is filled with stories of God's people who either get it right or get it wrong. And sometimes it's the same person getting it right and wrong. It's incredible. God is saying, come close, draw near, follow me, because I want to whisper my words of affection to you, of how much I love you, how much I'm, I, I'm designing you to live fully for me in this world. He has a divine invitation, and he has a divine intention for each and every one of us. The question is, do we understand what that is? And do we understand how God delights to make himself 
known. God is amazingly creative in making himself known to us. He loves to accompany us on our daily journey. So at work, he's accompanying you. At home, he's accompanying you. At, in the community, at the gas station, in the grocery store, he's accompanying you because he loves to do so. He loves you so much that he's there for you and with you throughout your every day. Think back in the scriptures to some of the creative ways that God made himself known. To Abraham, through dreams. Through Moses, a burning bush. Through the book of Proverbs, words of wisdom. Through the children of Israel, a cloud leading them forward. The priests were invited to cast lots and make God's will known. In the book of Samuel, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Samuel is crying out uh, as a result of Eli finally getting it, that God is trying to awaken this young boy into an understanding of his presence and his power. We can go on and on and on. All the ways in which God makes himself known. In the New Testament, he loves to make himself known through stars in the sky for wise men, uh, silencing and muting good old Zechariah, or using <coughs> angels for telling Mary or speaking to the shepherds. You see, creative ways of God making himself known to his people. And th so we need to trust that mysteriously and sometimes supernaturally, God makes himself known to us. And you're a Holy Spirit-empowered people. You understand that because you see the work of God's Spirit and you delight and rejoice in the mysterious and marvelous ways that he loves to make himself known. But one of my favorite passages of Scripture that speak to this is in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. And in Luke 24 is this wonderful story of Jesus coming alongside two disciples in their time of greatest discouragement and disillusionment. They were downcast. They, they were confused because they had thought that Jesus was going to be the Messiah coming in dramatically um, and celebratorily and with a crown on his head. And instead, they forgot what the scriptures had told them since their own childhood of how Jesus was to come into this world. So Jesus shows up on their road home. They're going seven miles home from Jerusalem to Emmaus. We pick up on verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you like the only clueless one in Jerusalem? Well, not really. Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus says, what things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. 
And what's more, it's the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they did not find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappears from their sight. They asked each other my all-time favorite question in all of Scripture. <laughs> were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the Scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled, saying, It's true, the Lord has risen, and he has appeared to Simon. Then these two told what happened on their way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. I love this story. It's a great story of coming to the reality of seeing Jesus, noticing Jesus along the way. Here they were, they had left Jerusalem, downheart, discouraged, disillusioned, distracted, and Jesus gently comes alongside and slowly reveals himself to them. Slowly. I, li I like to call this passage the slow and gentle reveal of Jesus. He comes alongside them, they're discouraged, they're disillusioned, and he begins to open their eyes, or as our Worship leader said, open the eyes of our hearts. Try to open the eyes of your heart. And so God is peeling away all of the distractions that had kept them from seeing Jesus. And Jesus slowly and methodically and lovingly walks them through the history of God's work in their world that they would have been taught in their synagogue experience. They would have been taught all about what the prophets of old would have said about the coming of the Messiah. So what Jesus had experienced in Jerusalem was exactly what was foretold of him. But they had forgotten that. They had hoped that he would be coming, you know, with strong and mighty hands and on horseback and, and triumphantly enter. And instead he enters Jerusalem on a, on a donkey, humbly, quietly, reverently. And so peeling the layers away, Jesus begins to open their eyes, one peel at a time, and he gently reveals himself to the point where he's in their home being invited in. We, don't, we only know the name Cleopas. We don't know who that other disciple is. And I love the mystery of that. I am of the mind that it is, I hope, Cleopas's wife, 
because I would love to say it is a man and a woman experiencing this together. And I would love the idea of the fact that they are going home to Emmaus and they're inviting him into his, their home. So he's, they're saying, come in, come into our space. And they practice hospitality to Jesus and he becomes the host, miraculously. They're the ones saying, come in, we're going to prefer your presence with us and he opens their eyes to see him for, he, for who he who truly is. And then he disappears. He doesn't disappear because he's mean or nasty. He disappears because he wants them to trust what they have seen and to trust the truth of the gospel and trust the, the magnanimous way in which by giving of his full self on the cross, he's expressing his love for them. So they see him, they say, were not our hearts burning within us? It, it wasn't the origination of heartburn. We're not talking about heartburn here. We're not talking about being burned out. We are talking about a burning sense of his empowering presence. A burning sense of his presence. You've experienced that. I, I just experienced it this morning, getting an embrace from Carol Nason, worshiping with you. Were not your heart bur hearts burning within you when you noticed God in your midst. Yes. And that's the goal of practicing a preference for God, is to get to the place where I have a burning sense of his love for me, a burning sense of his empowerment, a burning sense that he is present, he is guiding, he is sustaining, a burning sense that at work, I matter to God in the place where he has placed me in the workplace that he has led me to. It's having eyes to see. It's having ears to hear. It's having a heart that, that, that pounds with a presence and sense of who, his, who he is and how he's delighting in us. And their withness becomes their witness. I want you to remember that. Their withness, the fact that they were with Jesus and noticing his presence, it becomes their witness. And so they run back to Jerusalem. They run back those seven miles and they, they find the believers hiding away in a room and they say, it's true. It is true. We saw Jesus. He made himself known to us. And that slow and gentle reveal is proclaiming in witness the witness of Jesus. And isn't that true today for us? Frankly, friends, we only have a witness for Jesus when we have been with Jesus. Our witness, your witness in this place, you're with Jesus in your prayer closet at home. You are with Jesus as you travel about this world. You are with Jesus in the marketplace. Because Jesus is constantly by your side. The question is, are you noticing him? Are you noticing him? You see, their witness became their witness because Jesus showed up. He, they practice hospitality and he becomes the host. So the place becomes aware, they, they all become aware of Jesus because they had seen him. They had been with him. They had discerned his presence. And in discerning his presence, 
they experience his power. To discern means, means to perceive or to recognize, to pay attention to. To discern means we're separating out mentally uh, God and the things that are of this world. And when we discern, we're noticing, no, 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 that was, that's the voice of God. No, that's the voice of the enemy. Uh, no, that's the priority of God. No, that's the priority of the enemy. Uh, Jesus taught so simply when he was on planet Earth in this thing called parables. Every one of his parables was a choice. You're either on solid ground or you're on sand. And every single one of his 40 or so parables are a choice between one way or another. And in his Sermon on the Mount, he said, you have heard it said, but I tell you, a choice, a choice. We're given choices. Are we going to choose the way of God? Are we going to choose to practice a preference for God? Or are we going to choose to practice a preference for this world? It's a fundamental choice, friends. It's a fundamental choice. Because our witness, with our witness, we do develop eyes to see God. We develop ears to hear him. We develop hearts that, that are attuned to his presence and his power. And we develop hands and feet that are ready to serve in ways that honor and please God. You see, it's not rocket science. There's nothing about this that is really brand new. Nothing is new here. It's just a reminder, a reminder, friends, that in your workplace, in your home, in your community, in this church, we are to practice a preference for God. And when we do so, we begin to notice him in every way he loves to make himself known. Sometimes it's obvious that God has made himself known. We walk outside in the beautiful sunny day and we see the beautiful sunshine. We see the change of seasons. We see pumpkins everywhere. And we're just like delighting in God because it's just obvious. We celebrate the goodness of God through the beauty of his creation. It's obvious when we come into church, you know, when we're singing these great hymns of the church and great songs of the day, uh, it's, it's obvious. We notice him. But it's not always obvious to notice him. There are some times when he chooses to have us wait. We don't like to wait, but there are times when we are waiting on God. How many of us like to wait? How many of us are like, Ooh, give me the longest grocery line. Can't wait for the longest grocery line or can't wait to let all that traffic go in front of me before I go across the median. How many do that? Uh, nobody does that, right? Because very few of us like to wait. But waiting can be sometimes the best thing for your soul. So I challenge you in the next week or throughout this season, choose the longest grocery line. Let, let somebody else go before you and see what happens in your soul as you wait rather than rush. Because waiting is actually a part of God's design for us. He doesn't always make himself known immediately, instantaneously. Sometimes he says, dear beloved one, I simply want you to learn how to wait. And we're like kicking and screaming because we don't like to wait we live in an instant culture. We want everything done instantaneously. And God says, no, I, I love you so much that I'm going to have you wait. I'm just going to have you wait. 
We don't like that. It's like a, a sailboat out on the water, and there's no wind. And the sailor has some options. The sailor can either take out his oars and make that sailboat move by human strength. He can turn on his little um, engine and have, have that sailboat move because of the power of an engine. Or he can wait for the wind. Any true sailor will tell you the best thing to do is to wait for the wind. And when the wind comes and the sails are, are, are ballooning with, with joy and the movement is forward, then they're like celebrating what it means to sail. You see, sometimes in order for us to sail, we need to wait for the wind. Thirdly, sometimes we need people around us in a process to help us think it through. Was that God or not, the, not God? Do I really have a spiritual guide, a spiritual friend, a spiritual church that will help me determine, is this really of God? And that's what we're meant to be. As the people of God, that is our design. That's why God gave you a community of faith. What is our purpose on, in life? I know you have mission statements and all the rest here <clears throat> at Mount Hope, which are awesome. I would very simply say that the purpose of the community of faith is to help answer the following question. How can I help you get closer to God? How can I help you get closer to God? How can we help you get closer to God in your worship, in your studies, in your marketplace, in your community, in your friendship circle, in the tough times, in the challenging experiences and relationships? How can we help you get closer to God? That's what the community is all about. And we need the community sometime to discern God's will and God's way. So we ask our spiritual friends. I can't tell you how many times I asked Carol Nason for her wisdom on particular matters that I was facing personally, professionally, spiritually, and she would enter into my space and, and give me a great word, a word to consider for my own experience. We need each other. We're meant to live in community, not in isolation. So we need both time alone with God, but we need time together with God. And when we have time alone with God and time together with God, we are able to discern his presence and his power more clearly, more clearly. My wife and I live in, a, in an old home in Lexington. We have redone this thing over and over and over again. And in my book, the Discerning Life, I tell stories about this, this uh, crazy old home. And let me just end with one, one quick story. In, in our home, uh, after about 30 or so years in the home, we had to replace our hot water heater for like the fourth time. About a, about a decade of time, right? For those who are homeowners, it's about all they last. So this is about the fourth time that we had replaced this hot water heater. And when we had the plumber come in and make the change, he put in the new hot water heater and then he said, said piece of advice. He said, okay. It's like, um, you have very low water pressure. And you can't sell this house with this kind of low water pressure. So I said, so what do I need to do? It's like, well, you need to replace the water pressure by having a new line placed from your home to the main on the street, about 100 feet in distance. I'm like, huh, does the town take care of that? No, 
you have to take care of that. Does it cost? Oh, yes, it costs. So we set out to get a new water main. We abided by the plumber's advice because Ruth and I looked at each other and said, we don't know when we're selling. The kids are gone. You know, we might as well do this. And we'll have, let's figure out how we're going to pay for it and all the rest. So we hired the big burly guys who love to dig holes and make dirt, uh, do all sorts of things. And so they came into our house and they started digging outside the house. And he said, what I'll do is I'll just dig down six or eight feet, whatever it was. I'll look for the, for the water main and I'll just pull it from the house. And then we'll dig further down and we'll just pull it from the house. Well, they went about six or eight feet from the house. They went down, they pulled and it, was, it broke because it was rotting. So long story short, they dug up the entire front yard to the main, 100 feet away. We had this nice big trench in our, in our front yard. And then from the inside of our house, they put that copper piping all the way out to the street. And we got a new main. So at the end of this day, one of the big burly guys that was in, in our house said to, said to me as he was cleaning up a little bit, I I have a Dutch wife, so everything is cleanliness, is that, that matters. They didn't clean up as well. But anyway, he was finishing up the work, and he said, you know, sir, it's amazing you've had any, any water pressure in this house at all. I said, what do you mean? And he pointed to his filthy fingers, and he went, see that very tip of my finger, my, my pinky here? I was like, yeah. He's like, you had a nail head's width of a hole letting water into your house. I'm like, so that's not good, right? And he's like, what's well, amazing you've had any water at all. I said, well, we grew up, you know, we grew our family in this house. We knew that, you know, you could only take a shower without anybody else flushing the toilet or running water <laughs> in the kitchen. But we just thought everybody did the same thing. Don't, doesn't that happen in your house? He's like, no, sir. You know, I said, well, maybe it's Lexington. They're all like this. He's like, no, sir, they're not. <laughs> You had just happened to have a very old set of pipes underneath the ground, and they all busted, and you had a nail head's width right at the, the base in your house. I said, okay, well, very good. He left. They cleaned up the best they could. And uh, Ruth says, I'm going to go take a shower. So she said, great. She said, she came out of the shower. She said, wow, that shower hurt. It, it was like powerful water. So we started playing together. You go upstairs. You turn on the, the tub upstairs. I'll turn the tub downstairs. Then we'll put some water on the kitchen. And we were like kids playing in our house. It was amazing. Wow, we were amazed that we actually had water pressure for the very first time. It went down in the basement. There was a flood happening in our basement because our heating system, which is forced hot water, couldn't contain what was going on in this house. And so it just flooded into our basement. I called the plumber and said, you got to come back. I've got a major problem on my hands. And I want to know from you, because you advised me to do this, is my whole house going to implode because of this water pressure? And he came back and he said, no, we'll fix it. It's not going to implode. You're going to be just fine. And so since then, we've had decent water pressure. We went from like 30 to 85, whatever pounds per inch or whatever. And the point of the matter is, friends, we raised our family in that house. We raised our children in that house. We played around with the water pressure for over 30 years when we could have had full-orbed water pressure. And I look at that story as an illustration of the church today. The church today 
is putting up with the nail head's width of God. Just enough to get by. Show up on a Sunday morning, write a decent check for the offering, be a decent person out in my community, but just give me a nail head's width because that's all I need to get by. And Jesus says, no, I want you to have the fullness of my love. I want you to have the fullness of my life. I want you to have an abundance of joy. Not just a nail head's width, an abundance. And friends, I'm here as a brother from the outside world to just simply encourage you today to not forget that the God of the universe has an infinite, matchless love for you. He gave fully of himself so that you can have the fullness of a life with him. When you practice a preference for God and begin to notice the fullness of God, your life will be radically transformed from the inside out. Don't put up with a nail head's width of God anymore. Anymore. When you can have the fullness thereof. When we practice a preference for God, we are saying, I choose you. And I want to pay attention to everything you delight to give to me. Because you are the God of the universe. You are the lover of my soul. And I want more than anything to know you, to love you, and to serve you. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the ways in which you have made yourself known to believers of every generation, including our own. You delight to, to know us. You delight to make yourself known to us. You're tapping us on the shoulder of our hearts 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because you love us. You care for us. You delight over us. And you want us simply to notice you. And as we notice you, to welcome you. And as we welcome you, to trust you. That you have our very best interests in mind always. Always. So I thank you that in your presence we can be healed. In your presence we can be renewed and restored. In your presence we can be forgiven. In your presence we can worship. In your presence, we can trust you no matter where we are, no matter what our hands are doing in the workplace, in the home, in the church, and in the community. Help us by your grace to notice you in everything and to live abundantly with you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray.